I know happiness is infectious and it's the key ingredient to, to creating a thriving workplace and high performing teams. Happiness is kind of the root of everything. Today we're joined by Andy Gallimore, culture expert. This is an episode not to be missed. Andy talks through specific steps about how to enhance and build a culture and what role purpose, belonging and trust plays. He also talks extensively about why organisations should focus less on underperformance. Enjoy the episode. Andy, thanks a lot for joining us on the Happy Workplace project today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Nice to be um, here. You've got a really varied background that has covered HR operations. I think you've delved into the commercial world. You've operated across different sectors. And now you run a business called Cultivate, which helps people be happy at work. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, of course. So Cultivate Limited, we set it up five and a half years ago, six years ago now. And my passion came from those varied roles that I've worked in. So the operational roles, very fast paced, very deliver on the numbers, deliver on the KPIs, meet your targets, etc. Leading teams of people, then merging across into the HR side of things, you know, dealing with people issues, working out how to engage and inspire a workforce whilst managing the challenges that come with that. Kind of, I stopped and reflected on, on my career and my past and the challenges that I had and came to the re realisation that I can get trainers to help support people and train people. I can get coaches to come in and coach people and coach me, but ultimately they're kind of telling me what I already know and the onus is on me to sort of implement it, if that makes sense. The challenge with trainers is they train people and then kind of two or three weeks later, everyone would forget what they'd been trained. And something's missing from that marketplace of engaging and inspiring people and the world of HR back then. And what was missing for me was somebody to, to really hold my hand in a fast-paced business when I'm a leader or a manager, somebody to really hold my hand and guide me through the terrain of, of how to help people be happy at work. And I know... Happiness is infectious and it's the key ingredient to, to creating a thriving workplace and high performing teams. Happiness is kind of the root of everything. So somehow I set my business up with the idea of, of, of being able to help people be happy at work. And that ultimately comes from helping leaders and managers realise that there's a different way to achieving their potential and achieving the KPIs and the results and the targets. So that's where it came from, the idea and the premise of, of creating a support business or a support function that could hold people's hand and help them with a proven method for creating happiness at work. Fantastic. So as part of the work that you do, you have the luxury of seeing a whole range of organisations yeah. of different sizes across multiple sectors. I'm really interested to understand what the key themes are that you're seeing across those businesses at the moment. What are the challenges that they're experiencing from a people perspective? So the biggest challenge right now, which won't come as any surprise, is the ability to attract, retain the best people and talented people. This is a huge challenge across all the sectors I'm working across right now. So 
you know, post-pandemic, all of a sudden people people find it easier to leave an organisation. They've perhaps realised and considered their life during the pandemic and thought, you know, there's there's more to life than perhaps where I'm working now and there's other opportunities. And it's it's become a candidate's market, let's make no bones about it. So one of the challenges that I'm seeing across all sectors, all sectors, is this ability to attract and retain the best people and the top talent. So that has to be the first theme that I'd say is the most prevalent right now. And actually, it's getting to the point where it's where it's a real challenge and I'm seeing it affecting the bottom line and affecting businesses on their aspirations and where they're looking to go. You know, they're, they're, they're losing people they'd never thought they'd lose, for example, and they're really genuinely struggling to attract the, the best that they can get. Um, so that's theme number one for me. And for me, the other themes kind of link into that. So the next theme, theme I'm seeing, which is really positive and well overdue, I'm seeing far more organisations investing in their management layer. And not just investing in like hard skills, like here's how we make profit, here's, here's how a balance sheet works, you know, here's how. I'm seeing them investing in softer skills, which is obviously fantastic for me, but it's something that's well overdue as far as I'm concerned. So there's lots of courses there on management effective, how to be a great manager, time management, delegation, how to negotiate. Actually, what a lot of them don't do is focus on the softer skills how to raise your skill level with emotional intelligence, how to talk to people respectively, the best methods of communicating, how to understand what people really need. These softer skills is the next theme that I'm seeing more prevalent now. And I think that links to the first theme of people struggling to attract and retain the best people. I think people have realised, organisations have realised that actually this management layer, those who lead people are key to retraining, uh, retaining and attracting the best talent. And then the third theme that is starting to emerge now, and I still feel isn't quite there, is this realisation that we have to invest in our employer brand and our employer value proposition to similar levels that we invest in our marketing activity. So I'm starting to see now traction gaining with organisations realising that they've got to showcase what it's like to work there with real people and actually spend some money on doing that and making sure that their culture matches what their glass window, their glass door says. So if the shop front says we are amazing, we have an amazing culture, we look after our people, work-life balance is phenomenal, and then people join them, that's not the case. It's counterintuitive and what companies have realised now have started to do and are doing more and more is really making sure that the shop window isn't just a shop window, that reality matches behind that shop window. So That's really interesting, Andy, and I think I would wholeheartedly agree with those themes that you've mentioned. I think one to home in on for us would be the line manager population. In my experience, that's always been the level within the business that is arguably the most challenging because you've got messages that are coming down from above that you want to put potentially some kind of filter on to keep your people engaged and motivated. But at the same time, you've got all of the information, if you like, that sits beneath you within the organisation that is then put through a filter when you're passing it up, depending on what your agenda is and so on and so forth. Plus, very often there's this balance between delivery 
but also working on your area of the business as well. So I think time becomes a real problem. So you talked about investment in the line manager population, particularly from a softer skills perspective. Yeah. I wonder if you could maybe delve into some examples of where you've seen this work most effectively. Yeah, of course. Um, great question. So I could sit here all day long and talk about specific advantages Uh, examples of individuals who found happiness at work and what difference it's made to their lives and there's lots of of stories that I can talk to but before I do that I think it's probably great for the audience as well to encourage you to think for a second and what I'd like everybody to do is just think about a time when somebody's managed you or you've worked for a leader and that leader's been amazing absolutely amazing like you found them inspirational you respected them they respected you they encouraged you to thrive you know life felt great you felt really you know how did working for that manager or that leader make you feel the next thing i'd like you to do now we know how it made you feel how did that kind of affect your behavior and performance in the workplace and then the opposite to that if you think about somebody that that perhaps wasn't a fantastic leader or manager, you know, didn't give you all those feelings. How was your performance under that regime? And I think sometimes encouraging people to do that exercise and really think back and think about how they felt and how their performance was affected gives the answer to the question straight away. The the other and specific examples, and I'm not going to go into but a broad term is, it's really important for a manager or a leader to walk the shoes of the people that they manage. We spend a third of our lives at work. If we're not happy for a third of our lives, that probably translates into three quarters of your life. Because I bet if you're not happy at work, you go home to your loved ones and moan and bitch about what a day you've had and how awful it is, etc., etc. So actually, you're probably throwing away three quarters of your life. Andy, you talk a lot about a process called ask, listen and involve. I wonder if you might be able to explain what that means and how it works to us all. Yeah, sure. So... I believe, and this is tried and tested over many years, that there are three ingredients to a great culture. Uh, It's important to say at this point, by the way, there's no silver bullet with culture and there's no one culture that that fits all. It's it's impossible. Your culture is your culture. Mm -hmm. And actually, the best culture in a business is the culture that's decided by the people, not dictated by the leadership team. If that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, there's three ingredients to create the right culture for your business. And the three ingredients are purpose, belonging and trust. Okay. Elaborate on each of those stories. Yeah. So I failed to mention this when we spoke about themes earlier, but there's another theme that I'm seeing coming through at the moment. We had Generation Z, Gen Y, Gen X, etc., all coming through. You know, since the emergence of the internet, information at people's fingertips, they require a different level of management and engagement to inspire them. We haven't seen nothing yet. Generation (laughs) Alpha is around the corner. It's coming. It's coming. My son's there right now. He's 13. So Generation Alpha's coming. And this is where they've grown up with all this technology, with all these apps, with TikTok, and they know no different. So their brains are wired completely different. Like Gen Z came up as it was being emerged and they started to play with it and they saw it evolve. Gen Alpha, it's there. And now they're like, right, this this has become the norm. It's normal for me to sit on TikTok for three hours just trying to engage my brain. So there's other themes of things that have come through. And 
I was going to say, what does that mean then from a, a human perspective? I'm thinking that if you've got a digital reach, there's probably something around diversity yeah. and inclusion being the norm there. Yeah. Uh, and obviously that's a big theme that we're seeing at the moment. Is there something potentially around attention spans for this generation 100%. as well? Because information's flying through so yeah. quickly. So diversity, <clears throat> inclusion, yeah. the environment, yeah. our impact on the environment, all of the things that we're seeing hot in the press right now are absolutely paramount to Generation Alpha. The other challenge is their attention span. And those of you that will, with, with kids will completely appreciate this, but they just need information instantly. Or if there's a challenge or a problem or a question, they, they demand answers instantly. And their attention spans are just ridiculous. Like... My son's at the stage now where he's like, films are boring. <laughs> Too long. <laughs> Too long. Films don't engage. Give me a 60-second TikTok. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about my son. Yet sit him down for three hours with TikTok and he'll fly through that and completely content for three hours. It's just ridiculous. Their attention span and their desire for information is, is off the scale. So it, we've got a new a new generation about to emerge and hit us all that somehow we need to navigate and find a way through. And the point with this is there's going to be a generation after this, a generation after this, and it's constantly evolving. People are constantly evolving and we have to constantly evolve. I'm going to put my cynical cap on yeah. for two minutes and say to you, the values are just the values on the wall. What do they actually mean? How would an organisation do that? I think for me, without answering the question directly, behaviours should represent values in action, is there a way that we can start to integrate a mechanism that allows us to assess the behaviours that are representative of the values, for example? So for me, values should come from the top team. So we, we explore individuals' inner core values through an exercise and we pull them together and draw what the organisational values are. Okay. And the reason it's important to come from the top team is that they're the organisation's guiding principles and it's the top team that are making the big decisions on behalf of the business. So their guiding principles need to guide those big decisions, which is why it's important for them to come from the top team. And the, the, the way we keep values alive in organisations is once the top team have got, got their values and values, once they've got their values, the next layer down, so your management layer in an organisation should be involved in that process. So we, we encourage, we get the management layer to do an exercise where we explore their inner core values and we link them to the senior team's inner core values and we link their inner core values together so that there's a connection there. And then we encourage the management layer to come up with positive behaviours and negative behaviours connected with each of the values. And then this feeds itself into your performance process. So whether it's one-to-ones, appraisals, whatever that may be. So whilst you're reviewing objectives and people's performance levels, you can also review their behaviours, positives and negatives that link into the organisational values. So for example, if somebody's not so much of a team player, likes to keep things to themselves, doesn't communicate effectively, you know, one of your values could relate to this teamwork and this ethic of, of being a great team organisation working together. As a manager, you now have an in to have a courageous conversation with that individual or conversation with that individual and review their values. And it doesn't need to be negative. It's a proactive, positive thing. So for this, for this, I'm going to mark you for, for X because I'm noticing sometimes and on some occasions this is a... But don't worry about it. 
we're gonna this is what we're gonna do to kind of help you and support you with that and how we're gonna work together to make sure that this this increases for the next time. So it's a positive, proactive conversation and it's an in for a manager to have a conversation. So you just mentioned marking that person against those behaviours and values. Would you ever do it the other way around and ask them to self-score? Oh, always. Yeah. Always. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. I I always suggest the individuals rate themselves first with examples and then the manager reviews and they have a a great conversation around it. Fab. The cynical cap is still on. Yeah. Andy, the work that you're doing is fluffy and difficult to measure the success of. (laughs) Discuss. Yeah, I find I find that fascinating because, yeah, I can see I can see what you're saying. It's soft and fluffy, um, and and I get that quite quite a lot. That doesn't mean it's not impactful at all. So, mm. I, I, to be honest, I really like this challenge because we've got proven measures that demonstrate if you create a great culture where people and you encourage people to be happy in the workplace your results are far better. And that that includes margins. Your right first time figure will improve. Therefore, you're not reworking things because everybody's got pride in the organisation. So, yeah, it's soft and fluffy. And traditionally, we've never invested in it. That's wrong to say. There's not been as much investment into the softer skills of managers and leaders and organisations. It's more, you know, you're a manager now, get on with it, you should be able to deal with this. Uh, and we haven't invested properly in it in the softer skills. We've got to Gen well, Alpha are coming through. Yeah, but uh, but I think I think you're talking about Gen Alpha, but I think it's also a byproduct of the pandemic as well. For example, because we've all seen that well-being has become so much more front and central yeah. of people's lives and mental health issues, etc. Um, particularly post-pandemic. And now more than ever, the requirement is that those line managers have better levels of empathy, self and social awareness, and ability to create a psychologically safe environment, but also to work with that employee as not just a worker, but a human. By enhancing that side of things, you're going to make them a better worker, surely. And I'm going to say something now that I'll probably get a lot of criticism for, Mm. but I'm going to say it anyway. There's lots of initiatives out there now to help us look after people's welfare and well-being. I would argue lots of them are sticking plasters, lots of them are tick box exercises, and lots of them are there because we need to be seen to be doing the right thing Stick and it doing in the EVP. Yeah. Stick it in the EVP. You know, we, we have uh, mental health champions around the organisations. We have trained people to deal with you know, these kind of things. I, I don't think that's enough. I don't think that's good enough. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good. It's a step in the right direction. Actually, the people that lead people every day, that are having conversations every day, managers, supervisors, team leaders, your leadership team in your organisation, these people should be having great conversations with people where they're on top of everybody's mental health. They understand their teams. They understand their people. And on a daily basis... It should just be routine and as part of our rhythm that we look after people and help people be happy at work. For me, some of these initiatives require an individual to say, I'm struggling at the moment. Can I please have some time with a mental health advisor? Or I'm struggling with my finances right now. Can I please have some help? Actually, 
as, as a manager and as a leader, you should be close enough to your people to know who's struggling and to support them and see very often, you know, just a great conversation is all that people need sometimes. So I, I actually think, you know, these, some of these initiatives don't go deep enough for me. And yes, you should have them and you should do them. But really encouraging people, managers, to have emotional intelligence and great self-awareness and awareness of others, that's where the true benefits come. And that's where you get a culture that represents your shop window, not just the things that you say that you do, if that makes sense. Taking a slightly different angle on the values piece, yeah. how should businesses deal with people that don't live the values or uh, behave in the way that is representative of those values? I think the first thing is it's really important that expectations are clear. So like your values, it's not just values, it's values, behaviours, it's objectives, it's performance. I think dealing with anything of that nature when you're dealing with people is, is always a challenge. But first thing for me is like, it's got to be explicitly clear what your expectations are. And that comes back to all the points I've mentioned earlier. Make sure your purpose, your vision, your objectives, your non-negotiables, your values, your behaviours, make sure they're explicitly clear. And I love threes. People remember threes. So the first thing for me is expectations have got to be clear. Both ways. It's fair to say both ways. And then if you've got somebody that's consistently, you know, not behaving in the right way, that respects others or, 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 or diminishes the values, not achieving their objectives, then it's your normal processes as far as I'm concerned. But I, I operate a rule of three. So certainly back in my leadership days and, and now with my, my HR hat on, I always operate a rule of three. And it's like, you know, if, if I heard you talking disrespectfully to a team member or a customer on the phone at, at that point in time, and this is the critical thing, because the behavior you walk past is the behavior that you choose to accept. So if as a, as a manager or as a leader, you're not picking people up on behavior that's not appropriate, there and then, at that point in time, you've chosen to accept it. So I often hear, oh yeah, I'll, I'll mention that to them on the one-to-one. -one. I'll bring that up in their appraisal. It's too late. You have to deal with it there and then, or else you've chosen to accept that behavior as far as everybody else is concerned. So I operate a rule of three, and it would be, you know, if I heard you doing something I didn't feel was right, I'd, press, I'd pull you to one side and just like, look, I don't think that was really right then. We've got a real clear value about this and these are the behaviours. It makes perfect sense. It's, and the way that you spoke then didn't really demonstrate those values. And, I, I, I know, you know, it's, it's just not right. So first of all, I'd have a, I'd have a conversation. I'd say, look, just re address it. It's done now. We, we won't discuss it again. I don't want to have to discuss it again. Then the second one would be, look, we spoke about this. It's happened again. I'm... It's not right, and we need to see a change. If we don't, next time I talk to you, it's probably going to be a formal process. So these are the reasons why, etc. So I operate kind of a, a, a three-strike rule. But those conversations are difficult conversations. And there is a mantra. There is a, a method of making those conversations really powerful. And it uses key language. So the word noticed is critical, and the word wondering is critical and likelihood. So the way to construct those kind of conversations so that they land with impact and it doesn't create a threatening response is use that language. I've noticed, I'm wondering. 
So let me give you an example. Somebody does something wrong. You might want to go, what on earth are you? You should not talk to people like that. Don't ever do that again. Yeah, you might want to go straight for the jugular. But actually, if you approach the conversation very differently, going straight for the jugular doesn't encourage somebody to really think about the consequences and what they've just done and the deeper meaning behind it. They take it just as a telling off and they might respond with a threatening response. Well, that customer was speaking to me like a piece of dirt. You couldn't hear what they were saying. Or you didn't see what he did to me last week. Why should I treat him any differently? That's how he spoke to me last week. So you'll end up with a threatening response if you go for the jugular. And actually, the, the most impactful way to have these conversations is to remove that threatening response and acknowledge some things yourself. So actually, something like, look, I've, I've noticed on that phone call, keyword noticed, I've noticed on that phone call that you used this tone or that it was this. And I'm just wondering, wondering how you think the other person may have felt on the receiving end of that. You're encouraging somebody to think and it's less responsive. The even more powerful thing is to acknowledge some blame yourself, even though you might be thinking, that's not right. But for you to say, oh, maybe I haven't made it clear about the importance of tone when you're speaking to somebody. So apologies for that. But look, it's really important. You've just mentioned how they might feel. What do you think the impact of this could be? And they might say something like, well, yeah, they could think, oh, I want to go, I'm not having that phone call, I'm not ringing them again, I'm going to choose to take my business elsewhere. Or if it's a colleague, they might think, well, yeah, this doesn't create a very nice environment. They might think, oh, I don't, I don't like this. And it could be impactful, we could lose people and da-da-da, reputation, etc. The language is really critical. You know, I've noticed, I'm wondering, acknowledge some and encourage the person and you to have a conversation about the impact. We often forget the impact of it. That leads to a far more constructive conversation with somebody and they're left thinking, oh my God, yeah, no, I never thought about the impact. I could have done this differently. And they will naturally, you won't see that behaviour again. It's so effective. Um, whereas if you just go for the jugular, you get a threatening response. And nobody wins. It feels like a telling off. Uh, and you haven't really encouraged the person to think about the impact of their behaviour. So I recommend kind of a, a, a three-strike rule and using that way of holding a conversation. Noticed, wondering, likelihood we can spin things around. And actually, when you've had those conversations, back it up with an email. So I usually say to the individual, great conversation, thanks for your time, I'm glad I understand your position. Do us a favour, would you mind just popping it in an email to me so I know that we're both clear and we're coming from the same, same place. Or if that feels a bit alien to you, some people think that's a bit awkward, you back it up in an email to them. So you've got some correspondence and you're checking for understanding. Brilliant. Let's talk about you for a bit. You have built up a wealth of knowledge in this space. You've got a number of years of experience. You've reached the pinnacle of your career in the corporate world and you are an expert in what you're doing as of today. I'm wondering what the cost is of all of that success. <laughs> hair. <laughs> I've got no hair. What's the biggest sacrifice that you've made to get the things that you or to achieve the things that you have, should I say? The biggest sacrifice is probably the security of a corporate world and a and a uh, you know a guaranteed regular income. That that's pro you know I've certainly not sacrificed my family, but the, the the reason, if anything, I've done this is so that I put myself first a bit more, if if that makes sense, and then I'm better placed to serve other people. So I don't think my sacrifices have been anything in that regard. It's been more. You know, everything that comes my way, I have to work for. 
I have to earn. I've had to build my reputation, my credibility. I've had to build trust. All these things I've spoke about, we've had to kind of build that as, as a business. And our next job is only as, as good as our last job. So it's, you know, I guess the thing I've sacrificed is, is that corporate guarantee of an income and of a, you know, that stability. That stability, you know, I was in HR, this was my job, that's what I did. I was supply chain manager, that was my job, that's what I did, and I contributed to the business. In none of these positions did I have to really work hard to win business, work hard to keep business, work hard on my reputation per se in the outside world and everything that goes with all of that. So I guess my sacrifice has been that security, if that makes sense, of a job in an organisation. And you mentioned putting yourself first to be able to serve others better. Yeah. Could you talk to us about your relationship with well-being and health, and yeah. mental health, etc.? This is probably the biggest life-changing thing for me in my life, and that's looking after, recognizing that you should be looking after yourself first before anything. So you know when you go on an aeroplane and it's like put your own oxygen mask before you serve others, and I've always turned my nose up at that and thought, how ridiculous, you know, if my kids are next to me, I'm going to dive straight to that. But actually, it's it, it, it's true. And I'm certainly feeling the benefits of it now. So I've got a regular routine. I swim and I run every week, at least four times a week. I make sure it's part of my routine. It's part of my rhythm. And I actually put that first. So I plan everything else around those activities. And as a result, you know, I'm, I'm better placed, I'm, I can think faster, I'm more agile, I've got more energy, I've got more life, I'm better placed to serve other people and to help other people. So yeah, my, my well-being has, has completely changed and it, it, it's interesting because in the corporate world, you, you asked me what I'd given up and it was that security. I wouldn't say I put my well-being first when I was in the corporate world. It was all chasing my tail, running around. Do you know what it was? It was pace. Like, pace was ridiculous. And that's what I feel now for, for, for the people that we serve and we look after. It's like I respect and understand this pace and this need to run around and try and get everything done as fast as you can. I get it. But actually, stop for a second. Put yourself first a little bit more. Look after your well-being. Look after your team. And the pace will naturally change. And it, I feel like I'm a preacher now, but I feel like I'm just preaching and it's probably really obvious. But I, I didn't do it. I never found time for exercise. I never had the time to eat properly. I'd be like grabbing a meal when I could. Do, do you know Wrong what I mean? Wrong sort of food. Wrong sort of food. Yeah. Just lifestyle choices. I'd probably get home and think... Oh, that was tough. Where's the wine? I'd have a, I was going to say a glass of wine, but let's be honest, I'd probably have a bottle of wine and then you'd feel a bit rough the next day and it's like, I don't know. The you coffee just, then to kickstart. The coffee, you so just... The cycle get, starts. Yeah, you get trapped. <laughs> yeah. You get trapped in this cycle and it's like, there's another way, actually. And I, time was always the thing for me and I, I envied and I did, to some degree, hate people who'd be like, yeah, I've, I've just been to the gym and looking all fresh, and I'm like, how the hell do you have time to do all of that stuff? I just haven't got time. And then I'd blame things, be like, well, you haven't got kids, that's why you haven't got time, or, you know, you haven't got this pressure, or you don't have this to deal with, or you don't have that. No, it's, it's all rubbish. You have time for where you want yeah. to put your time. 
I was going to say the harsh reality. Everything comes back to the fact that it is a choice. It's choice. Yeah, it's choice. Yeah, and and the same with people. You choose to spend time helping people be happy at work and understanding their woes and whys, and you know what what makes it. You choose to do that. You choose to put time in it, or you choose to chase the numbers and the KPIs, and uh, you know, it, everything's about choices. What's the greatest lesson that you've learned in your career? The importance of people. And perhaps a bit deeper than that, the importance of people and the importance of perception. So when I say people, like everything in life revolves around people. So you're only as good as the people around you. Your people operate your machinery in some way, shape or form. For me, your people are what give you true competitive advantage. That, that's been a lesson over my career. It's like people are really important in everything that we do and we should invest and nurture and take time with people like we would a good piece of machinery or, you know, so that's, that's probably a big, big lesson is that people element. So the other, the other greatest lesson I've learned in my career is surrounds choice and time. And we've just spoke about it. Choice, time and respectfulness. It's like, it all comes back to the same thing, but making more time for people so that they can thrive. Respecting people, which comes back to perception. So people don't always see things the way that we see things. People see things differently. And sometimes that, that can lead to frustration. And actually it's, it's stopping when you're feeling frustrated and thinking, no, they're perhaps just seeing things from a different, nobody intentionally sets out to ruin someone else's day. So it probably comes back to communication and perception somewhere along the line. So it's like that ability to stop when you're feeling you're getting frustrated and just think, no, it's a perception thing. Take time, slow down and understand somebody. somebody. And then probably an, another greatest lesson is, and it, it perhaps comes back to respect a little bit, is that, do you know what? Hierarchy doesn't really matter. And that confidence in yourself and your abilities is what's important. And I see lots of people who lack confidence for whatever reason and have a huge nervousness around hierarchy and senior people. And and you know what? We're all people. We all want to be happy in life, I think. That's fair to say. And it's like, just be confident in your own skin. Be confident in you who you are. And stop thinking that someone else is always better than you. It's like, they're just different than you. And yeah, they might be better at some things than you, but you're probably better at other things than them. So just because somebody's a CEO, it doesn't make them God. You're just as important in what you do. So it's like, be a bit more confident in yourself and stop having this fear of things that you can't control. What's your ultimate life goal? Do you know, my ultimate life goal actually is to, is, is to expand what I'm doing because I'm I'm seeing it impacting people's lives so positively and that's I'm not just saying this stuff now it's how I feel it's like that uh, we've tapped into so it's a gift it's like showing people a different way and helping people be happy at work it's just it sounds all fluffy it sounds all nice I, I don't care what it sounds like I see the difference it makes every day people can judge uh, as much as they like I see this in, in action every day and actually 
I want to I want to build my team, build the business, build awareness, and get more people doing what I do, so that we can create uh, you know an, an amazing workforce in the UK that are happy, strong, confident, interdependent, and why can't we do that? So I, I, I think my ultimate life goal is to you know e- expand and, and 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 do that as much as possible, uh, and also spend as much time as I can with my loved ones and my family and making sure that everyone around me is as happy as they can be. And what do you want to be remembered by? <laughs> it sounds soft and cheesy, but pr- probably the guy who helped people be happy at work. Andy, we've reached the quickfire round. So what's something that you've achieved that you're proud of? Setting up a business, helping people be happy, and completing my MBA study two nights a week whilst having two children and moving home. Wow. <laughs> How did you react to your greatest failure? Panicked, probably screamed, ripped my hair out, fired a load of short-term demands at those around me, and then stopped and thought, right, what can we learn from this? How can we move forward and adapt and change the way that we do things? What's something you regret, and what would you have done differently about that situation in hindsight? I don't regret things. It's a mantra I've set myself. But there is one thing, there is one regret I have, and I partially righted it, and that is that I didn't go travelling for a year because I love travelling and exploring the real world, and that's genuinely my only regret in life. I wish I'd have gone travelling, but I've managed to do it with my life. What do you like most about yourself? Uh, I don't think I take my tel- myself too seriously. I like to have fun, and I'm pretty good at taking the mickey out of myself. What's your biggest area of development? My ability to articulate things succinctly without so much emotion tell us about something that you're passionate about people and understanding how their brains work what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given stop worrying about things that you can't control what's one book or podcast that you recommend for our listeners simon sarnak start with why thanks for listening today we hope you enjoyed the episode remember to like and subscribe